Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just $60, bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. You're listening to the Celtic Soul Podcast with me, Andrew Millen. You're all very welcome to episode 21. On the podcast today, we will have the second part of our conversation with Paddy McMenamin. The response to Paddy's story has been very positive. Once again, as we continue to try and bring something a little different and unique from other podcasts you may be listening to. It will be a tale of two games as Celtic return to action this week. Later this weekend, the Celtic players will travel to Dundee for a tough game with Dundee United at Tanadice. The home team will be well up for the game and they will be confident from Kilmanic's resistant performance and hard work against us at Rugby Park before Bolingoli Gate had our next two games postponed. Fair play to Livy who done us a favour and took points off the wonderful Stevie G's tribute act during our temporary exile. But first tonight, Celtic take on Reykjavik of Iceland at an empty Celtic park. The Celtic players would be keen to get back to action and we might get a first look at Albi Ayeti if Lenny goes with two up top. If not, I'm sure we will see him at some stage come off the bench. Qualification to the Champions League can offer Celtic financial riches that no other competition can. With COVID restrictions, progression to the next qualification round of the Champions League will be decided on the night with no return leg. The game is part of your virtual season ticket and will also be shown on Premier Sports. In the first part, I chatted to Paddy McManaman about Celtic so far this season. Growing up in Belfast, watching Glen Torn, his early days of following Celtic, the start of the Troubles in the North, joining the Republican movement, internment and being sentenced to six years in prison. We rejoined the conversation in part two with Paddy settling into life in Long Cash. So you're now a prisoner. See, at that time, at that stage, it was the done thing. He refused to recognise the court. We, um, we spoke a few words in Irish, refused to recognise it. They asked the warders, can these guys speak English? Do they understand English? But we reserved the right as well to challenge them. And you know, they would lie their teeth and they would say anything. And a few things, we just picked through a wee bit of their evidence, maybe that they, they'd made up like stories. You know, the, like the army fort was a couple of hundred yards down the, the road from the estate and they sort of said the scene is ready to fire on the estate and all that, you know. But, you know, I mean, it was, it was nonsensical because we didn't have any rifles with us, you know. But things like that. But anyway, the, the trial ended. The judge uh, sentenced to six years. You know, we said a few words to him and um, they, they sort of dragged us out of the court down beneath the court and we had to wait then for a few hours, met uh, the parents. You know, it was sad, sad, you know, from my mom and all, you know, Johnny's sister and was there. And, but then they, they we were transferred back to the cage then, you know, and that was it in the cage then for the duration, you know, of the, of the sentence, you know. So that became home for six years? Yeah, it's, uh, I'm tempted to be facetious and say I've been in worse places, but maybe not. <laughs> no, you know, from, from reading... And from listening to interviews, it was a military prison. It seemed, oh, yeah. to, be, it seemed to be very organised. Um, language was important. Education was important. Yeah. I mean, these were the years, like, like automatically we, 
Billy McKay had led a hunger strike in 72 and it was part of the ceasefire deal that to get the prisoners political status, although they called it special category. They, they couldn't stomach actually saying political status. And the loyalists got it as well, even though they weren't involved, and, and the officials, and then the, the, eventually the INLA. So everybody had political status. So if you're one of the, the groups involved in the conflict, you come into the prison, the warders even asked you, what group do you belong to? And that's the cage you went to. So the cages were, obviously most of them were provisional cases, cages. The officials had one cage because they'd went on ceasefire. UVF and the UDA had, um, I think, three cages. The, after 74, the NLA would have a cage. So, you know, it was 22 cages. I mean, the camp was about, I'm not sure that, read somewhere the size of it, but it was like the size of a small town, you know. It was uh, old Nissan World War II RAF huts, and so that we were in the old ones at first, and it was just surrounded, it was just barbed wire everywhere, around the cages, then around the perimeter, and a perimeter fence. There was watchtowers, like like you would see in uh, concentration camps, uh, you know, in Germany during the war. The the warders, you know, it was like like night and day compared to the time the boys were in the H-blocks leading up to the hunger strikes. It was horrific. We had control inside. We had an elected committee and an OC. Nobody talked to the warders. They didn't even come into the cages at times. They walked around it. They would come to the gate. The OC would go over whatever it was he wanted to talk about, or, or and or he would go to the M if there was something we were looking. And we had complete control we wore our own clothes, you know, we organized ourselves, you know, every morning um, we were drilling in the yard for an, for an hour. Then there would be, um, there'd be lectures on history, Irish history, European history. You know, we're, we're, I mean, there's two things Republicans do. I've done since, since, since the Fenians probably that when you go to jail, the first thing you're obliged to try and escape and you know, explore any avenue where you can see a weakness to try and, and get out of the place. And the second thing is education, and Republicans have always done it. The loyalists, some were okay, some did, but the loyalists didn't have our background. They had nothing to fall back on. This had never happened to them before. And they were all running about. They were like Johnny Adair lookalikes, skinheads, the tattoos. They were muscle-bound. They were doing dope. You know, they were, and they didn't, they didn't go in for the educational side of it. It's, some did. I got to know one guy, Plum Smith. He died a couple of years ago. He was a UVF guy. He was a shop steward in Harlem Wolf. And the, he was chairman, actually, of the Northern Ireland Supporters Club in 82. And they went to, I seen him on TV when they went to the World Cup. Interesting guy. Not your normal, not your normal sort of, you know, he, he was interesting. And he, I used to talk to him. We were both learning Irish. And uh, we had a guilta hut, uh, about 16 of us. And it was total immersion you know, like French Quebec or something. It was total. We just, if you only knew one word, you used it. If you were fluent, you used it. And he was learning Irish in the UVF cage. And I must have got talking. I can't remember. I must have got talking to him through this, the, 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 our shared thing in the language. And me and him would meet every day walking around the yard across the wire. And we would chat and we would chat about what's happening outside and we'd chat. And no more than us having no time, you know, for, for free state politicians, as we called them then, and uh, or for John Hume even, God rest him, and uh, and and the S Jerry Fett especially, he had plummeted no time for Paisley and and the and the unionist leadership. You know, he saw through them. He was a real, he was a working class socialist, which there is a tradition on the shankle of. You know, you know, yeah. come back over the years. You know, but that would be going on the language classes. You know, or, or lectures. There'd be weapon. We would make um, would make up dummy dummy weapons, and there'd be weapons lectures, the history lectures, uh, and um, the loyalists were then more for the more military because they you know they were coming from maybe a British army background. They they would used to call themselves sir and all this nonsense, you know. Republicans as a more casual sort of thing, you know, we wouldn't be into that sort of stuff anyway, you know. So it was more, even though it was military organized. It would still be more, it'd be more focused on education, trying to work out why the hell we were in there in the first place, trying to understand um, what was happening, trying to understand where we were going in the future. So, Paddy, you had access to you had access to books, obviously. We had outs, people on the outside, like uh, support groups, 
And Sinn Féin really was, you know, it was only a small group then. It was more a support group. But they would send in. So we'd well stocked. I mean, I've always been a reader. And uh, so I love reading. Like, lots, like anywhere, no matter what cohort of people, most people actually don't read that much. If you, you know, you know it, uh, but, but we would get books sent in by the thousand. And we'd have our library. We'd have one sort of hut. We'd call it the library hut and canteen, maybe. And uh, like we would have uh, everything from James Connolly to Marx to Chairman Mao, uh, Castro, every struggle, Algeria, Cuba, Portugal, you know, um, Algeria, every, we were reading all this stuff and, and, and sort of, le- and getting educated, to be honest, that's where I got, really got my education, you know. It, um, I started up, with, we, we had a cage newspaper. I learned to type would you believe, on an old black typewriter. And I wasn't, uh, I wasn't a great, I wasn't, uh, some guys were brilliant and they made the harps that everybody's seen. And uh, that wasn't my, I used to, used to do, used to make uh, handbags and wallets and stuff. And uh, used to, we priests used to send us in material to, to, to homemade these sort of rugs and stuff, you know, and we'd send them out and uh, we'd send out some to raise money for, um, outside for the prisoners or whatever, but would then send some to our relatives. But uh, I learned to type and uh, we had a wee newspaper, a wee news sheet in each cage and then we'd have an overall one and and, um, and it would be um, it would be politics, it would be history and I would get, you know, and I became the editor of it and uh, you would get guys to write, anybody was interested and they would write a page about what maybe current affairs, uh, maybe a wee bit of history um, there might be then a wee bit of sport and as you know, like a bit maybe of table tennis competitions or a bit of football out in the yard, different things like that, a bit of sport, um, maybe quizzes, an Irish language page. And I actually have, uh, I sent out about a dozen of them before we burnt the place and I have them to this day, like 40 years later. And the university here in Galway were interested in taking them and putting them in the special um uh, what is what are they called special reading room for 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 young students to to be able to access them you know so i've been i've been talking to considering that i've went from belfast to donegal you know to galway and they were in they were in a box in the attic i suppose and they survived and they're in actually very good nick and paddy you mentioned football there out in the yard yeah obviously you're a football fan you know yeah. sadly you, you know but then sadly could become your team yeah. Did you get newspapers for match reports? Or, oh, know? yeah. Yeah, yeah. the papers would come in. I mean, the, the problem in the cages, even though we had the run of it the whole time, they only ended special category in March 76. So we had it the whole time. And with the running off the place, but, but also every so often there'd be a riot. And, you know, they would stop the papers for a month or they'd stop visits or, you know, so that would interrupt even. I was doing A-level English. Uh, and uh, 74 before we burnt the place. And of course, then there was like we had our own education system, but then the the establishments, like they would send in teachers. And uh, so I was doing A level um, uh, English, but then we burnt the place and there was nothing for a year, like it's sort of punishment. But and, uh, and what happened after? What happened after the fire? Where were you? Where were you? Yeah, they, just, yeah, just before God, we had like access, we had the television. Now, like everywhere else in Ireland, you'd never see Celtic, you know. You know where it was in the 70s. And uh, the only games I remember seeing was the semi-final against Atletico Madrid in 74 when they were reduced to eight men and we drew nil each at Parkhead and they beat us 2-0 away in Madrid and they threatened to shoot Jimmy Johnson's was the big story of the time. Jinky was terrified, apparently, the boys said afterwards, some of the players. But... Uh, I remember seeing that, and then you would see wee clips of cup finals. And I seen the 72, sorry, the 72 semi final. I was still interned against when Dixie Dean blasted over the bar. I seen that uh, during internment. It's remember. amazing, Paddy, with all that was going on. You can remember Dixie Dean. Yeah, and uh, I actually remember the day I was listening on radio the day we won the nine in a row. I just forget, but uh, it was on. It might not have been on live in the radio, but I remember it coming on anyway. And they were talking about Celtic during the nine in a row, and listening on the on, on the radio in the cages. You know, I I actually don't recall seeing. Well, there wouldn't have been any other Celtic games on in Ireland at the time. You know, but we were up. We were up to date. We, you know, we were kept up to speed with what was happening. You know, 
after the burn, I mean, the burning was as a story on its own. It would nearly take your whole podcast. But, um, but I mean, we had been protesting all year. Uh, we used to throw the food over the wire. We refused the food. We did get our, our, our families were sent on food parcels. We lived on that. We refused visits. Um, it was all about conditions, whatever, in, in, in the camp. The loyalists worked with us. Gusty Spence, the famous leader, and Jimmy Craig, a UDA leader, they're both dead. They agreed to work with us, and they hung up a banner in their cage with a green hand clasped with a, a red hand, and the legend, the slogan, United We Stand, Divided We Fall, it was, it was brilliant. And they said, we'll support you if you go to... Like, the extreme was to burn it. The screws thought they would call our bluff. The UDA, the end, got, and the UVF got word from outside. Like, the guys inside were more enlightened, I suppose, the UDA outside were still sectarian bigots. They told them to back off. People outside are getting annoyed. These are fraternizing with Republicans too much. But Krusty Spence and Jimmy Craig told us, we'll support you. We won't burn our cages, but we'll give you any logistical support. It, this night, uh, on 15th October, 74, there was a round, cage 13. We'd warned them, if you send the army in again, we'll burn the place. They tried to call her bluff. They sent the army in. We used to have guys done a semaphore, you know, it's the flags, uh, like a military system where you can send messages uh, with these two cross flags. So we would have two guys. They climbed up on top of the hut, sent the message up. We were at the top end of the camp. They sent the message to burn it, and it went round every cage. And we gathered the 80 of us in the middle of each cage, and a few men went into each hut, and uh, everybody had a box of matches, and... Uh, did their stuff, you know, within minutes it was in flames. We give the screws, the warders, we give them a free passage. And we were also told, Billy McKee was the OC, and the the camp said nobody was to try and escape because the Brits were still up on top of the watchtowers and they were afraid that, you know, they would kill a load of us if we attempted to escape. I always think, again, as Hines said, in 83, 38 of the guys went out the front gate. There was 2,000 of us rioting that night. I mean, what they could have done with 2,000. I mean, if we had put on the screws uniforms, as they did in the 83, they wouldn't know who was a screw and who wasn't. And, and But anyway, that was we burnt the place down that night. We camped out. There was a big football pitch in the centre of the camp. Uh, the place was burnt down, burnt to the ground. The Brits stayed away, but they surrounded the camp. And at 7 in the morning, we had small transistors that were smuggled in. And on the on the radio, it says everything's under control and on case, and all the prisoners are back in their cells. <laughs> and there we were, in, there we were in complete control of the camp. It's still another three hours. The next thing was seeing a gate busting open and a couple of Saracens come flying in. And I said, actually, on and film the Brits put up one of the you know the big things. Uh, what do you call them? The rises up in the air. They were filming from there. They filmed the whole thing. It went on for six hours from ten a.m. to four in the afternoon. I mean, there was one stage. I remember thinking, this is this is surreal. And we fought them hand to hand because we weren't street kids. And I, I mean, I remember meeting a Brit face to face and he was terrified, you know, f- more frightened than we were. And we fought them hand to hand. They were firing gas, plastic and rubber bullets. Huey Dorn, another friend of mine, was lost in eye. And Huey died in the last couple of years. Um, we caught a couple of Brits in the middle of the field. It was ebbing and flowing. And some of our boys wanted wanted to do them. But some of the head guys says, boys, we can't. They'll, they'll kill 20 of us, you know. They'll shoot us. So we let the two guys go. Ironically, when they had us after the after the raid ended and they had us lined up against us, I sent you some photos earlier on it that came across today. They had us lined against the wire. Apparently, the two boys that, that we had saved were doing a lot of the kicking afterwards, you know. That's how they thanked the boys, you know. But... Um, so the guy eventually got it settled. Gusty Spence negotiated with one of our leaders. That they, they, they divided us on the pitches, and they came in firing the gas, and some of the guys got terror, horrendous beatings. And uh, we were moved back to the top, still around. But Gusty says, it's futile, guys. They're going to kill somebody. So he says, if you go back to your cages, back there was nothing left in the cages. So we went back to our own cages. The Brits came in and started handing out beatings. And just left us there. And we thought, Christ, they'll move us to another jail. Or the loyalists said, there's talk they're going to put you in the Maidstone or send you to jails in England. They actually left us 
they actually let us live in our own shit, to, to use a phrase. We had to cobble together uh, bits of corrugated iron and, and stones and make wee tin huts. And that's how we lived for the next seven, six weeks while they, while they refurbished some of the cages at the lower end of the camp. Well, did about, you serve all your six years in, in the cages? Yeah, yeah. So it was in cage 18, cage 18 most of the time. After the burning, uh, when they started moving, as, as each cage was completed, we moved down to cage 10 and finished up in cage 10. You, you came out then after six years. Yeah. Well, I got six years, but with remission, you know, it was a bit less, you know. A bit, a bit less. You, you've come yeah. out, you know, there's a life after prison. I, I know yeah. you were married, you, you had a family. Was it an emotional return to see Celtic? Freedom, you know. It, <laughs> yeah, Mary, my partner, saying, yeah, his first love. <laughs> she shouldn't be listening. <laughs> yeah, she wasn't listening, but it sounded so interesting. She said she'd come in and planted herself. Um, well, first of all, the no, I, I came out, um, which was emotional in itself. As I walked out, uh, I promised myself I'll never be in jail again. You might think I had a death wish amongst, along with other people. For the next year, we probably tried our best to get back in again. Not at our own, but just the way things were, and, and it was crazy. And um, But we a wee bit of luck, a wee bit of maybe more experience, a wee bit of we survived. Um, but it was getting, it was coming close. Uh, you know, to be honest, when you join, you're told there's only really the future it's 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 you're not going to get a career and a pension out of this jail or death is usually the end solution and you know as the end of 77 it was probably becoming something like that it's we had the paras and the marine commandos in and, and things were a bit crazy and and i'd met my i don't know how to describe her because uh <laughs> anyway um Mary's waving her hand in here. Um, I'd met my future wife. She actually was in Armagiel at the same time, along with Maria Farrell and others. And she got out a few months after me. And, you know, we were building a relationship. And maybe it was an eye to that. Maybe, you know, I was worried, you know, if you get lifted again, then it's not going to be six years because they had doubled and trebled the sentences after they brought in, they brought in, the end of political status, but they also brought in 50% remission as a sweetener. They were hoping the, the, the provost would accept it. So there was a 50% remission, but they doubled the sentences. So you were getting 10 years or, or when you were getting five previously, or you were getting 20 instead of 10. Uh, you know, and my mom said to me one day, which moved me, and she was crying, and she knew I was involved again, and she says, you know, I'll be dead when you come out again if you get lifted. And you know, I, I felt it. You know, it was, um, you know, it was a moving moment. You know, it sounds very but, emotional, Paddy. Yeah, it was, um, and we just anyway. You know, we we headed for Donegal. There was a lot of a lot of our friends been lifted a lot. You know, around the same time, and uh, it seemed a sort of a safe bet. And some went to Dublin, some went to Bundorn, some. I had the connection, you know, outside Letterkenny, so you know that was an obvious um, route to go. My ex-wife followed me down and Hain said it wasn't a great idea. But anyway, we got married in Donegal. A lot of guys who were on the run all landed. It was, it was, a, it was a great day, you know. Um, my, my sister, who was the girl paper at Bobby Sands' funeral, she was in a paid band. We invited six of them, but 20 of them landed from Belfast. And, and the break during the music, uh, they all got up on stage and they started rattling out all the stuff all the rebel stuff. And the guy who owned the hotel, John Lilly, was an English guy who'd been buying up property. A gas man, you know, but but uh, he had a bouncer, Hugo Dugan, who I played football with, and uh, he phoned Hugo. Hugo told me later, John Lilly phoned him, he said, Hugo, get down here to fuck the place is full of effing provos. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, we got married, and, you know, we when the kids came along, I was still close to things, but, you know, maybe removed a step, and then the hunger strikes came along, and it was a difficult, difficult time, you know, for everybody, you know. You know, we got through the hunger strikes. I was chairman of the local committee. I was nearly tempted to, you know, go back to the old ways in a sense, 
But whatever, it, it, it didn't, and uh, things moved on. And the following year, my Celtic life started all over again after 11 years. I went over to Glasgow, still a wee bit worried in case they would pull me in, you know. So it was, uh, you, you just didn't know. And, uh, and um, But it was they were playing Real Sociedad in the European Cup. And um, if I recall, they were beat, they'd beat us 2-1 out there and I think scored first at home. Mortimer McLeod scored two, I think, to win the excellent match. But we're in the M days, I think, up till Martin O'Neill, I think generally we could beat in the first round in Europe every year. I mean, it was desperate, you know. Does that bring back some kind of, like, the troubles are still on, but getting out of Ireland and over to Glasgow, did it bring back some kind of normalisation into your, like, was it an outlet away from politics yeah. and war? Yeah, it was, um, you know, I mean, it's, you're living in Donegal, even though it's only it's only 20 miles into Derry, it might, it might as well be a different world, never mind living in, in, in RD or, or, or um, living in Galway, you know. And to be honest, you know, most Donegal people didn't want to know, no more than most people in the Republic. At that stage, it got war-weary, uh, you know. And unless you were Republican or Republican-minded, the movement were like lepers, really, during the 80s. It was a very difficult time, you know. I remember I worked in Letterkenny in a car factory. There might have been three people, as there was, three volunteers killed in Shaban one night. And I went into work the next morning, and we're sitting around the table at the tea break. And the boys were talking about how did Man United get on last night, or um, maybe there was a by-election in, in, in Donegal, or maybe the price of uh, painted went up. Nobody would even mention that the three guys killed by the army and in Straban. You know that's that's the way it was right through them ten years. And did you, you feel know, isolated it, it, by that? I I didn't feel isolated. I didn't. Most of the guys in work wouldn't have knew. Where I lived in Terman, it's a wee small area outside of Kenny, where my mum came from. My granddad was a blacksmith. Most people in Terman would have knew, and most people had no problem, you know. They would have all knew I had been in long case. There was never any any problem, you know. Terman's, uh, most of the vote would have been Fianna Fáil or the Blaney's at the time, and now it's mostly Sinn Féin, you know. So it would have been a sort of, I suppose, you know, certain levels of, of Republican thinking, you know. Yeah, but I mean, it was uh, you know, but you didn't talk about it much. But again, there was moments like uh, like when the boys escaped in '83, and you know, one day the about a hundred soldiers and twenty branchmen. I was at work, and they landed at our house, and she opened the door and uh, says, "We're going to search your house in case any of these escapees is here." You know, and, and she had a you know, she's you've been from Belfast. She says, "Have you got a warrant?" <laughs> And one of the branch men says, oh, we've got one of these, you know. They went away and got a warrant, came back, raided the house. She said, you know, she says, I'm like, where do you think we're going to put him with three kids, you know. And, and uh, anyway, and then when they kidnapped Don Tidy and he was held in, famously in the forest in, in, in uh, Leitrim, they raided again, you know. And it was so funny. My wife and our neighbor and her friend were up at the post office, it was a few hundred yards away, and they were coming back and there was about, 30 Irish army wagons parked and apparently the two women says, Jesus, what is the army doing here? And they came back to our house and they were all in our house. And another argument, she says, what, what's going on here? She says, we're, the, the, the special branch guy, you know, and special branch guys in the 80s weren't the nicest. I mean, I know loads of guards who played golf them, and played football and some great guys. Special branch guys, especially the political police weren't, weren't nice guys, you know. And, uh, you know, he he says, we're looking for Don Teddy, you know, and again, she says, where the F do you think I was going to put him in this wee house, you know? And uh, so a few things like that, and we neighbour, and he was a mad Celtic man, he's dead as well, dead of cancer at 49, we pat, gave us some party, and he came over that night for a cup of coffee, and he says, you had visitors today? And I says, yeah, no. He says, he says, I'm just wondering, like, you know, why did they not read my house? I says, oh, i <laughs> 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 so we had a few instances like that, but I mean, Eamon Doherty's dead, and you know he was involved with me in underage football coaching, and I called him Eamon, and Eamon was a cousin of Martin McGuinness, and he called into our house actually the first month we were down. He'd just been promoted sergeant, and he called in and on a social call, 
and uh, it was so funny. And he and he says and he told us he was related to Martin McGuinness. He said it doesn't mean I support anything like that, but I understand more so than a, most country guards. He says keep your nose clean and you'll have no problem. And you know we got on great and we're involved in the football. And um, I went to him after the Don Teddy episode, and I said to him, and you know we're not involved in anything. It upset the kids. Guys with guns in the house. And he says, Paddy, it won't happen again. I'll contact headquarters. And he says, they just have a list and they're just going through the, the motion of going the people on the list to raid the house. He says, they know Fane Redley. He's not in your house. But So I, I think it did. It never happened again. So, well, you know, he was, um, but he was a nice guy, you know. He helped me out a few times, actually. And, you know, he was a good guy, you know. Now, Paddy, can I take it away from or yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm yeah. back to Glasgow? It's 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 absolutely fascinating the chat. Um, I think you know. I think the listeners are going to love 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 listening to your story because it's it's a story that needs to be told. So you went back following Celtic then uh, after yeah. eleven years, you know. And there's been so many ups and downs in all those years, you know. And we haven't the time to you know go through everything. No, no. But if you could pick out one or two moments, Paddy, you know, yeah. folly and Celtic since then, what what would be the high points? Well, the one, and I know you have a special interest in, because I, I noticed in one of the fanzines, and you said if you could go back in time, the Centenary Cup final, you would love to be there, I think. Did I read yeah, that one yeah. time? Yeah, that was when I was just starting to, I was 16, yeah. I was starting to take an interest in Celtic. Four of us, my cousin uh, had come back, he was, he was an engineer in Norway, he'd come back, he got good tickets in the main stand, and uh, we shared the main stand with the, the Iron Maiden, Margaret Thatcher. She wasn't that far away from us, and there was times during the ninety minutes, you know, a, 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 you know, I felt like I felt like nearly running at her, you know. But anyway, she, we went over. There was a strike in Stanley, we nearly didn't get over, but we got over anyway at seven in the morning. Uh, Dan McLaughlin and Frank McGettigan with me. Dan's brother was Brian McLaughlin, who played. He made his debut at sixteen and seventy four, and took Jenkins' place. He only played seven games and a big ignorant fullback with Clyde, I think, done his cruciate. And in the seven games, he played twice against Rangers. And his family have a wee pub near my uncle's pub in, in near Kerry Garden, Donegal. And I met Brian and he actually played one summer cup. He'd been playing in Australia and he came back and he played with us. Summer cups was a big thing in Donegal. And you would get, actually, you would get professional players playing under an assumed name. And uh, Brian and I played, uh, played with him one day. And I was chatting to him and I says, what was it like coming out against Rangers? He says, Paddy, I thought my heart was going to burst. That's, that's what it meant to him, you know. And uh, unfortunately, Brian died a few years ago. He, he had an accident along the Clyde, you know, and, and uh, he was only 50, you know. But Dan, his brother was with us, Frank, and we, Pat, the wee Scottish guy, we dropped them off. I went to my aunt's, dropped Pat at his sister's and party. We had a bit of a doze. Went to Hamden, and it was brilliant. The, the the trade unions. It had actually been on TV the night before about it that Thatcher was going to present the cup, and it says I remember ITV saying, and the Celtic support are, are, are Irish Republicans, and now they're going to react. And the trade unions in Scotland printed red cards and give everybody one gun in, and they didn't bring Thatcher even after everything. They couldn't bring her out to meet the teams. The match started and Thatcher was brought into the main stand after about five minutes to try and avoid any unseemly behaviour, as they would describe it. But people seen her, even, even, the, even the suits in the main stand seen her. And the next thing, the red cards went up and it just spread around the whole stadium. And the Dundee United fans and the Celtic fans and the main stand. And everybody started singing, Maggie, Maggie, get to fuck. Around the whole stadium. I think you can hear it on TV on the video of it, and they held up the red card, you know, and the booter and booter. And the, um, I remember Roy Aiken talking about it later, like he didn't know what to make of it. He, he cleaned it, shows you on TV, as he went to get the cup off, he rubbed his, cleaned his hands. And he says, I didn't really know what I was doing when I met her, you know. <laughs> but, it, um, but anyway, it was a great game. Kevin Geller, nephew of the great Patsy Geller from, uh, from Remelton near us in Donegal, scored the first goal. It was like that to the last 10 minutes. Anton Rogan from, from uh, Andy Town had his best game, probably in the hoops, and he got ridiculed a lot, but he was a, he was a, a real Celt, and he was determined. You know, he made an odd mistake, but he, he was a brilliant guy. 
and he floated one over and, and McAvaney nodded in. And then I think it was the last minute, Joe Miller into Billy Stark and on to McAvaney and he, and he blasted it in and sure the place was, uh, it was pandemonium. It was brilliant, yeah. Well, we're on Celtic and as, as a former Republican prisoner, and a Celtic yeah. fan. Where do you stand on the debate of rebel songs and ballads from sung at Celtic Park? Uh, I differentiate, and it's, it's an ongoing debate, and there's a bit of ignorance. First of all, I hate uh, sectarianism. I got it out of my system. I always say to people, it might have been in my DNA, as it is in everybody's who grows up in Belfast. That's just the way it is. When I was in the cash, I got it out of my system. When I came out of the cash, I used to tell younger Republicans, it's not right. You know, we, we don't do this. We don't, you know, we don't, we don't kill people because of their religion. We don't attack them. And I got it out of my system. I, I absolutely abhor it. One of the things that I found abhorrent at Parkhead, hearing people sing in St. Patrick's Fenian Band and, and absolute nonsense and garbage. I wrote to the Celtic View one time about it. It's disgusting. It's, it's sectarian bigotry at its worst. And we have, we don't have, a, we don't have anywhere like a, a majority like like the Bears do. But we do have people who have sectarianism within their makeup. It's unfortunate that Glasgow is, is, is more or less another Belfast, and it's their and their DNA. Generally, Celtic supporters, you know, it's just not our stuff. And and in recent years, we've nearly stopped all that. To me, singing rebel songs is a different thing, and the English don't even get it. I mean, they're not even. Rebel, they're Irish folk songs. I mean, we're singing about the, you know, we're singing about Easter week. We're singing about 1798. We're singing about the Fenians. These are all historical songs about our history, about history against colonialism. You know, they're not, we're not singing about, uh, you know, about killing people or we're singing about resistance to British rule. And that's to me is what these songs are about. The Celtic family is, I know it's, it's, it's a mixture. You have, Obviously, the Irish diaspora, you have the Scots-Irish, you have people who are, are, are strictly Scottish, I suppose. Um, some people don't like that sort of stuff. I'm sure, you know, as you go higher up the the, the stratas and uh, society, you know, the, you know, maybe the well-heeled people on the board and, and the suits maybe find this stuff a bit difficult. I mean, to me, you sing in the fields of Athenry, or Grace, which is absolutely wonderful, and I love to hear it been sung at Parkhead. I mean, I'm sure we've all noticed there tends to be a, you know, the boys in the in the Green Brigade, and uh, you know, and I mean, they're, they're kids, and and they're great, and they bring a vibrancy to Parkhead, which wasn't there for years. And they, but they'll start off songs. You'll hear them sometimes, you know, Athen Ray or whatever. And I get a sense around the stadium that a lot of the stadium are not inclined to join in. You know, I find that at times. And, you know, whether it's because, you know, Celtic themselves have, 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 have put, you know, the hammer on it. And, you know, I read, I, you know, I've wrote, an, I've wrote a piece for uh, Joseph Bradley, you know, produces the Celtic-minded books. He's in the fourth or the fifth's coming out, I think, at Christmas. I think I should have a piece in that. And I read a piece, uh, the girl singer, what do you call her, she used to sing all the Celtic books. Uh, Patricia Ferns, and she wrote an article in one of the previous ones, and she said she didn't mind people criticizing her and people disagreed, but when Celtic told her, and when she went to Parkhead, they gave her a list, you're not allowed to sing these songs or you'll never sing here again. And on the list was, you know, Boys the Old Brigade, uh, you know, Rifles the IRA, whatever, you know. And she says, when I read this, I was disgusted, you know. Yeah, and she had to tone it. She had to tone it down a bit, you know. But and and I find that I mean, maybe in the modern corporate era. I mean, as, I mean, like when I talk to people, like I mean, like, you, you know yourself. No, I can't, no point me preaching to you or anybody listening here. We all know Celtic's not just a football club, you know. I mean, I couldn't imagine sixty thousand people going to watch football in the Scottish SPL. I mean, to Hamilton and Ross County. I mean, I find it hard to watch. I mean, there must be a reason why 60,000 people go, and it's the bigger picture, it's the Irish diaspora, it's the whole Irish connection, it's Michael David bringing the sod over it, it's Walford and it's the famine, and that's what makes Celtic, and that's what makes it different. And singing the songs is all part of, of the culture, you know? 
And do you remember going back uh, before Fergus, McCann, and back, do you remember uh, the guys were running the show? And do you remember they were really trying to dilute the Irishness of the club? Do you remember? I think there was even a talk, maybe they would take down the tricolour yeah. playing over the North Stand, you know? And there was a wee period when we were getting worried about it. I think that was other clubs because... Uh... Bob Kelly said he'd rather play Gaelic on the pitch than take the take the flag down. That's right. Bob I think Kelly even, I think even the, the powers that be at Hibs at that time were were looking for the flag to be taken down. Paddy, there's a beautiful ballad you said there, Grace. You know, and I love to hear it be sung as well. And yeah. um, but what I don't like is when I hear stupid add-ons into it because this oh, is of a course. this is a beautiful song and it doesn't need add-ons. And and, and that's, that's kind of and that's where. People can argue against against songs when, when, when there's right. add-ons in. Oh yeah, because it's the same. I mean, the the, the um, yeah, and you hear. Oh, I can't think just off the top of my head, but yeah, there's different songs, and you'll get people throwing in Sinn Fein or IRA, and it's not needed, you know. And it's not needed. It's not needed in sort of non-Celtic company, especially. Yeah, you know, you don't want to offend anybody, you know, and 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 you know, it's it's you know, the songs on their own right are, are beautiful, you know, and. Um, and you know the if you had the time, Mary could give you a great version of Grace, you know. But uh, for another day. <laughs> so we're moving back from from we're moving back from the North Stand in Glasgow, and we're back yeah. now we're back there in the six counties. Okay, so we, we've had the Good Friday Agreement. Yeah, we've had peace. We have we have a new Belfast where you grew up, yeah. a cosmopolitan city. The next step then for many Republicans would see the end of the struggle in a border pole and the United Ireland. Is, is that the end game for everybody? Or is it realistic? It's, well, I think it's realistic, but it's not going to be easy. It's, um, I mean, obviously, I mean, unity is the end game, but what form of unity is what has to be worked at? What form of government has to be worked at? What form of accommodation? I mean, loyalists have to be part of the New Ireland unionists. And, you know, we have to work with these people. I mean, the sectarianism still in Belfast, and we see it at the bonfires, and we see, I mean, you know, that's there. And, you know, I mean, I wouldn't like to be, I know it won't be a Garda, but it'll be a new police force and all that stuff. But, you know, to be a guy from Mayo patrolling along the Shankill or even over East Belfast near the Oval where we used to go, I mean, I, 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 I'm sure he would find it, it wouldn't be that easy. But, I mean, all them things are, are, are going to be talked through, same as it has been since the Good Friday Agreement. And, I mean, there's incredible things happening in Belfast since since the, the agreement. And, I mean, especially in working-class areas, and you have ex-IRA um, people and ex-UVF people in UDA working together. And the reason that there's no riots generally on the streets isn't because of the PSNA. It's because... Ex-prisoners on both sides have greater credibility within the communities and they just tell the kids, just back off. And, you know, and, and that's what's happening. And a lot of that has gone on in interface areas and, and, it's, and it's working well, you know. And if something happens, apparently they contact each other by phone and they'll get a few from each side of the fence and, you know, trying to defuse the situation. So all them things are, are ongoing. And I mean, you know, we've come to the city. When I lived in Belfast, it was 60, 40 unionist. City Hall wasn't our city hall. We didn't go into town. You couldn't go into town with a GAA jersey on, you'd be killed, or a Celtic jersey. Now Belfast is 51% nationalist, more so nearly 51% Republican, because Sinn Féin dominate the, the, the politics in Belfast. Um, so with a majority in Belfast now, I think at the last election, it was sort of like 52 to 48% towards unionism within the next 20 years that's bound to work out at, at least 50 50 or eight you know they say 50 percent plus one it's not going to be that simple but i mean now i think it's the time and i think some intelligent unionists realize that i mean it is only a matter of time till there's a majority of nationalism um that can vote the north or the six counties out of out of it out of the uk and maybe it's time to sit down and work things out, you know, as they were doing over Brexit. Some people, you know, and some of the farmers in the north, and they realised, you know, their lot would be better in with the Republic. And, and uh, you know, even Ireland at times seems to be, a, you know, seems sometimes to be a bit, um, to be a bit interested in, in, in developing things, you know. And, but, I mean, all that's 
all that's in the future, you know. I mean, we just have to wait and see. At least, you know, we can be glad that there's nobody been killed, that, that my grandchildren will never have to live through anything like we did in the 70s. You know, that, um, that people are having a different life in Belfast. And it's not that it's easy-ozy. I mean, you know, living in West Belfast, where things have improved and there's no soldiers, um, it's still an urban working-class area like parts of Dublin. And ironically, it has all the problems that you get there, you know. And whereas during the conflict, we were able to control it and there was no druggies or, you know, there was no, you know, you, you never, you know, there was no antisocial behaviour or if there were the hoods, as they called them, it would be punished and all that, but that's all finished. And now drugs are rampant in Belfast as they are everywhere. And, you know, you hear stories of, of old women of rape, of breaking into houses in the middle of the day, of, of stuff happening that never happened. Like during the conflict, our communities were so together. Everybody knew each other. You know, I mean, I suppose it's, it's just, it's a big city. It's, you know, half a million people. It has the problems that any big city anywhere in the world will have, you know. And it's just, uh, you know, it's just I've talked to a few people and they said it's a, it's a little, after everything people went through in the conflict and everything that suffered, to have some of the stuff that's happening at the moment, you know, uh, it's just unfortunate, you know. It's a huge problem in society, is it? Yeah. Paddy, um, an, an, another question I wanted to ask you, we spoke there about the songs. Should we as Celtic fans be also debating, you know, there's a section of our support and, a, a, you know, openly call people orange bastards. Now, I do have a problem with that because I don't want yeah. to be called a Fenian bastard by a Rangers fan or a Hearts yeah. fan because yeah. of, or a bastard of any type. But I find it, I suppose, disturbing that we have an anti-racist, you know, anti-sectarian, left-wing agenda among a lot of the fan groups. Um, yeah. Not everyone, because, you know, we're, we're a broad church. But then when I hear the same people uttering the words orange bastard, I go... Yeah. You know, where, where, why are we not debating this? Why are we not as Celtic fans turning around, you know, and saying, shut the fuck up? Yeah, yeah. I mean, essentially, it's ignorance, um, Andrew. It's deep-rooted sectarian bigotry. We have to face up that it's, it, it is on both sides. Generally not, obviously, you know, more so comes from the other side, but that doesn't excuse anybody. I mean... Anybody who refers to somebody as an orange bee or, or a Fenian bee is a bigot. He should be called out. As Celtic supporters, we should be calling them out. Again, you know, how we do it is, you know, I mean, I remember reading a few years ago when there was the, the debate about Lenny and like this um, this uh, bank manager, I think it was, and he wrote into the, to the papers something that, oh, he says it doesn't mean anything. He says, my best golf partner as a Fenian bastard. He says, I call him that every day. And he made a joke of it. And he says, like, he said, I don't even think I said it. It's so ingrained in his, in his mind. The same as people would refer maybe to somebody's weight, if, if, you know, or somebody's whatever. He called him a Fenian B and he said he wasn't even thinking of it. And he, this guy was a bank manager in Glasgow. And, and, and that, I think that's part of the problem that people say it nearly don't even think about it. I mean, I, like, I've even told people in Donegal and, and here, essentially the Republic's not supposed to have bigotry. But, I mean, it is there. I know the popula Protestant population has, has gone down a lot in, since partition. But, I mean, sometimes if you scrape people, and there was a lot of Protestant farmers lived where I live in Donegal, and I've heard people using that expression, oh, that Protestant bee. It was just an expression, nearly, probably they didn't even... But they actually said it, and that's, I think that's, that's the, and that probably happens in Glasgow and happens in Belfast. They nearly say it without thinking. It's just ingrained in, 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 in society, you know, and there's a sectarianism, an undercurrent in, in, in the Republic that, that it even, that it is there, not very strong, I must say, you know, and you'd rarely ever hear it, you know. But how we, how we eradicate it is, I'm not sure you need to educate people, you know, I mean, it's, um, I mean, Celtics, in one sense, have done a good job in, in cutting down some of the songs, but maybe they need to make a major campaign and say, this is totally unacceptable. You know, that's not the type of people we are. We Any sectarian expression and 
if you're you lose your season ticket if you're identified, you know. To show someone to sing someone is an orange bastard, and then to sing a historical Republican song to me, it just doesn't sit together. Of course, but also people. I mean, as you know, and I've and I've had a few arguments over the years with Celtic guys in Letterkenny. But whereas they might sing the songs and express the the slogans, the percentage of them that actually were are Republicans or were revolved in Republicans, you know, I'm not sure what percentage you're talking about, you know, but it might be small in the overall thing, you know, and I think that's where you get, I honestly don't think you get it so much from people with a Republican background using them expressions, but I do think you get it from people who are just Catholic bigots. And I mean, no harm to anybody, and we do have a percentage of them, you know. I honestly think it comes down to ignorance. I think, I just know from my own experience, you have to work to get it out of your system. I'm sure I've used them sentiments when I was a 16-year-old. You have to work to get it out of your system. It's wrong. It's, it should never happen, you know. And and that's the thing that annoys me the most, especially down here, because you know they're all man you and Liverpool supporters here. You know, there's always a, there's always a, a good Celtic cohort and a Celtic pub in every town, but you know, most of them watch the EPL. And I've had it, people say to me, never mind like the standard of the, the SPL they're always giving out about and how Celtic couldn't survive in the, England. But they'll also say that's sectarian shit. We don't like it, you know. Yeah. And, you know, and we need to do our bit to, to make sure that it's seen that, it, that it's not us. Whatever about the other crowd, you know. Yeah, we need to be progressive and lead the way. Paddy, uh, how do you, you just mentioned there about the football? How do you see the season playing out? We've had a bad start. We dropped two points to Kilmarnock. We've had two games postponed because of the Bolingoli incident. You know, we're playing catch up. How, how how do you see the season playing out? Do you, do you do you see the ten being delivered? Yeah, I think we will. I hope we will. Obviously, I'm a bit uh, concerned, as I said before. I remember the nine in a row and how we ran out of steam the next year. I was at Parkhead that day against St. Johnson when, when they run out of steam for their ten in a row. And I mean, I know everybody's going in thinking, yeah, this is a doddle. We're going to do the ten in a row. I don't think, honestly, it's going to be that. I think it's going to go to the wire, maybe. I think Rangers have got stronger. We could be 10 points behind by the time we play the next, or 11 points behind by the time we play the next league game. You know, that'll take a bit of catching up by the time that we play the games in hand. We could probably be level at, at New Year. We can't expect the same thing to happen three times in a row, the way the Bears imploded the last two seasons after New Year. You know, and it could be a battle. Um, in one sense, I sort of I welcome it because I hate seeing Celtic win the league by 20 points, you know, or, or even Man City, as I love to throw to the to the English supporting cohort. But, I mean, you like to see a competition and I'd love to see it going to the wire as long as we come out on top. Well, Paddy, I don't I think, think, I don't I think, think my heart be... could take it. <laughs> yeah, you don't want to be going to the last match of the season and, uh, you know... Um, no, no, definitely not, Paddy. Definitely not. I could, you, could, you wouldn't do that before hard. I, I think, you know, we're probably good enough... Um, you know, to hold them off. It'll, it's going to depend on the signings. We've made a couple now. Hopefully we get Shane Duffy in. It'll bolster the defence. It'll be a boost, you know, for us. Um, and, you know, depending on who they sign, you know, the I don't think the calibre of player they're getting maybe matches, although the games they played against us, I mean, they looked really equal on the field last season, you know. Hopefully, hopefully it works out well. And I remember um, 98 and... We were up in the Garngad uh, for a party afterwards, you know, and they had a street party and there was 10,000 there and it was incredible, you know, and uh, I don't know where you know the Garngad. I'm sure you do. I, I do, yeah. M- Michael, one of, yeah. one of our columnists, Michael's from the Garngad. My my ex-wife's sister married a wee guy, uh, Kevin Hillick, and he's from the Garngad. And after I met him then in the 90s, after we split up and he they stayed friendly with me, we would go and stay in his house, which was only five minutes from Parkhead. So for 10 years, until people started staying in hotels in the city centre, I would have stayed up around the Garn Gad on, on different nights, you know. couple of good and, nights. Uh, there was a few nights and there was a few nights in them big tall tar blocks that I had. I remember a guy had a big mad Alsatian. Oh, Jesus. 
and uh, and there was a wee Celtic club, the Huddle, and I know the owner. He was a friend of of Kevin, my brother-in-law, and uh, I'd brought over a few guys from work, first time ever, and uh, we were in the club, and uh, one of these mad Scotch guys started putting out a butt on his tongue. <laughs> what sort of mad place is this we're in, you know? Paddy, before before we wrap up, can you just tell the listeners a little about your own podcast and, and the columns that you write and who you write for? Um, yeah, I mean, um, it's kept me busy during the the lockdown. Uh, I suppose, well, I'd always an interest in writing. I loved writing. And um, from the, the wee cage papers back in the day, then I got took early redundancy after 20 years in, in, in uh, 03, did a year in computers, went back to NUA Galway, did a BA in history and English, did a PGDE in teacher training, became a secondary teacher, did a master's in history because I was teaching history. And then became a poacher turn or poacher turn gamekeeper, isn't that the right? Or is it the other way around? <laughs> but anyway, I ended up working with a with the state commission, marking the leaving cert and junior cert, and invigilating at them. And uh, you know, so I got into and I was always writing and uh, in the college and stuff. And uh, one of my first, we laugh about it. One of my first lectures, I threw her back the first assignment. And she threw it back at me and she says, do you think you're an effing writer? We joke about it since. She says, none of that flowery stuff. She says, just give me back what I want and work the system. That's the way university works. So anyway, I started writing uh, a couple of years ago. Uh, we have a local paper, the Chicano Tribune. And sadly, uh, my grandson, Oisin, uh, he was 20. Me and Mary brought him to Seville in 03. I had no ticket for the match. Um, but... Uh, we slept outside the stadium that night. I walked in and strolled in when the Porto fans were coming out and ended up in the director's lounge with uh, Brian Wilson and Jack McGinn and had a few glasses of wine with him. Just chanced my arm. We Oshin, uh, we Oshin lost his life about five years ago, next month. And the, I wrote a piece about it and about... about um, you know, it wasn't the way for young people. It's so rep- prevalent nowadays. And I just appeal to young people, this isn't the way. Thing Life can't be that bad. And the editor, John Mack, um, contacted me and he says, would you like to write for a weekly thing for our paper? So about three years ago, I started writing. I read a weekly article about 2,000 words. I'm open. I can read anything. History, football. I've wrote different bits about Celtic. Um, uh, I can write about golf. You know, current affairs, anything I wrote about John Hume last week. And I, I've been doing that. And then I decided uh, um, I'm okay on, on IT stuff and all. And um, if not, Mary can help me out. And, uh, you know, so I, I, I started the 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 blog. And I started off by putting all the articles onto the blog. Uh, and then I started, did a podcast during lockdown, just passing the time. And putting stuff onto the podcast, you know that that I'd written, you know, and um, it was only really a bit of fun. I wasn't going to take it take it t- too serious, you know. But uh, you know, it was great. It was therapeutic, as you know. Um, the last year since my surgery, I started writing a book again. Mary encouraged me for years. She says put it down in paper. Eventually, I got round to it when I was uh, they recovered and they recuperating, and I, I scribbled up one hundred and thirty five thousand words. It's about the long case years. It's about Belfast. It's about Donegal. It's about life. And it's about a lot of guys who have, who have died over the years that I knew. And it's a sort of a, it's a, sort of a, a tribute to them, probably. Um, and we Oshin. Uh, and, you know, that was very good. It's with the publishers now. It's, it's, we're going to probably bring it out before Christmas. And, um, the, uh, and we'll see how it goes, you know. It's the uh, it's title. Well, the working title is "Arm Struggle to Academia," and you know it's uh, there's a few I had to cut it a wee bit, and they're making there's five writers reading it at the moment, and make a few adjustments, and uh, we'll see how it goes. You know, it was, as I said, it was very therapeutic. I, I enjoyed it, brought back a lot of stuff, but it was good to do it. I mean, it's there for my kids, it's there for Mary, it's there for my kids, it's there for my grandkids. You know, we never really over the years talked much about it to our kids. Um, actually, my grandkids, you know, were more and more, even we Ocean, I always remember, he'd go into the shower for half an hour and I'd give out to him 
you're putting up your mommy's heating bill, my daughter. And all of it here coming out of the shower was coming out to you black and tans. And I thought, oh, I should pick this up somewhere. <laughs> and my oldest granddaughter, now she's 19. She was sitting with me the night we beat Barca. I didn't get over for some reason. And she was watching the match. Maybe oh, she actually lost interest in football. But when Celtic scored the, the two goals, of course, I let her to roar. And she jumped up and all. And before that, I think I seen her wearing an odd Man United top. She's had the hoops on ever since that night with Bid Barca 2 1, you know. So it's. Um, well, Paddy, hopefully yourself, your granddaughter, your son, you can all go back to Saturday Park when it's safe to do so and we can enjoy a wee drink. And uh, Paddy, I'd love to have you at one of the live shows. Um, and when the book comes out, we'll definitely do something with you when the book comes out because it, I, I can't wait to read it because we've only touched on your life. Um, if you play your cards right, you might get a complimentary copy. Oh, I'll sign, I hope. But, Paddy, I think this is going to be a two-parter because uh, <laughs> we just had to let the tape run because the, the, the conversation just flowed. It's fascinating. It's great. It's great. To tell you the truth, I was a wee bit nervous. I mean, I've never done anything, yes, and I, I could feel a wee bit of butterflies in the stomach, but maybe that's adrenaline and it's no harm. And, Paddy, you know, Paddy what, you, what you've been through. <laughs> Paddy, it, it, as I said, it's been a pleasure to chat. Um, I got to know you through... You're writing for a magazine before I met you, but some of the articles you wrote, I, I, I kind of knew you before I met you physically. And then um, we've enjoyed a point in Glasgow, but we've never really sat down and had a, had a proper yeah. conversation till today. So I thank you for that. Uh, I look forward Great. to reading your column in the next magazine. Uh, it's, it's, the podcast has took over now, and I'm under pressure to get the first of the season out. We were lucky enough to get two out during the lockdown, but I'm back working on it this week. And once again, Paddy, thank you so much for your time and for sharing your story with the Celtic Soul listeners. It's no problem, Andrew. I enjoyed every minute. I just want to give a wee shout out. I have two good friends in Glasgow. Uh, Jerry Morton lives out in, um, oh God, it's gone out of my head. He lives a wee bit out of town. I know, but he was a Garn Gadman originally. And I go to the matches. I stay with him when I'm over. Big Danny whose mother was from term and I went to school with my mother. And uh, I meet Big Danny. He's about six foot five. He's a great Celtic man. And uh, we meet up. And um, I just want to give a big shout out to the two of them. They're, they're, they're great guys, you know. Well, thanks for getting them to listen as well. Lots of other two listeners we have, Paddy. And also, sorry, before you go, the guy from Norway contacted me. Big Harold. Who, Harold contacted me, emailed me. And he printed one of the articles in his fanzine over in Norway. That's correct, Jay. He sent me over <laughs> a copy. It, um, and he, he just emailed me there uh, last month, or last week, was it? Uh, I must get back to him, you know. But uh, oh, He's a super we'll guy, Big Harold. He was the first we'll person ever to write a letter to the fanzine back in 2001. The okay. Celtic family. As Great. I said, Paddy, what a pleasure. I'm going to talk to you soon. No problem. All, all the best, Andre. A fascinating story. Thanks to Paddy for being so honest and for telling us his story in his own words. I'm sure Paddy will be back on the podcast when his book is published and I look forward to chatting to him again at one of our live shows. If you're enjoying the podcast, you can support us by visiting CelticFanzine.com where you can donate for the price of a pint. You can also support us by becoming a member for as little as $7.99. Subscribe to More Than 90 Minutes for as little as $5.99 or you can buy some merchandise for as little as five quid. We promise no unwanted Google adverts on our website or articles, and no unwanted advert interruptions on our podcast. We're keeping it real, we're keeping it independent. Your support will help us to continue to produce quality independent fan journalism, podcasts, video content, and free live Celtic fan events. If you are not in a position to financially support us at this time, don't worry, we will still deliver the same quality content to all fans free. Don't forget to subscribe or follow on your preferred podcast host. Apple, Acast, Spotify, we're on them all. So you never miss an episode. All podcasts are also on our website by visiting celticfanzine.com forward slash podcasts forward slash. Please follow us on social media. We are on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. And if your business or Celtic Supporters Club would like to sponsor an episode, we would be very grateful. Just get, drop us an email to info at CelticFanzine.com As always, thanks to Ronan McQuillan, our producer 
and to you for listening to the show. We will be back on Friday when the original Holy Goalie, John Fallon, will be joining us as we celebrate his 80th birthday and his Celtic life. From standing on the slopes of Celtic Park, supporting his team, to playing at the highest level for the hoops in our greatest ever era. Enjoy the match tonight, enjoy the rest of your week, and I'll be back here on Friday. Keep the faith and stay safe. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.